Friday of 2019. This is an honor. Pat O'Keefe getting to sit in for the one and only Stephen A. Smith on a football Friday, no less, here in New York City. Glad to be joining you this afternoon, fresh off a Knicks win at Barclays Center last night over the Wobegon Brooklyn Nets. We'll talk plenty of that a little bit later. I want to dive into the football. Of course, the number to call, 1-800-919-3776. We'll take your calls as we go through the afternoon as well. But it is the same week every year that I seem to sit in this chair, no matter what the show is, as I go through my usual uh, filling in duties here at 98.7 ESPN New York. And it seems to be the same thing every single year. We're getting ready for week 17, and we are getting ready for another end to a playoffless NFL season here in New York City, here in the New York market. And that is the case once again. We did have that anomaly in 2016, the first year under Ben McAdoo, when the Giants went to the playoffs, they went 11-5, and but then everything since then went so far south that it would almost have been better off if the Giants missed the playoffs that year as well. Remember the boat trip, and then Odell Beckham Jr. drops the ball in the first drive in Green Bay, and then the Packers get the Hail Mary uh, right before the half, and then, of course, the Giants just get blown out in the second quarter of that playoff game. The Giants are in a similar situation now that they were two years ago when they were wrapping up a 3-13 and season in what was supposed to be Ben McAdoo's second full season as the Giants head coach. He had already been relieved of his duties, and the uh, Giants kind of bottomed out. And it seemed like, at least two weeks ago, that the Giants have bottomed out again. And as you look at this Giants team, and really you look at the uh, landscape of uh, the football here in New York City, we are bracing for another seismic shift on the local football scene. And the question I have is if the shift happens every single year or in some cases twice a year, can it really be considered a seismic shift anymore? Because it used to be that a coach being fired or a general manager being fired and replaced in this market or really any market was considered a seismic shift. But can we consider that shift seismic if it happens year after year after year, right? Because last year we had a seismic shift when Todd Bowles was fired and Adam Gase was brought in. And just for good measure in May, we had another seismic shift when the Jets fired Mike McCagnin and then eventually replaced him with Joe Douglas. The year before that, we had a seismic shift. Ben McAdoo and Jerry Reese were fired late in the regular season. Reese eventually replaced by Dave Gettleman. And then after Steve Spagnola was the interim coach for the rest of that giant season, Pat Shermer eventually took the reins as the Giants head coach. We have seismic shift after seismic shift after seismic shift here in New York. And it's really driving football fans crazy. Because if you think about it, that awful playoff game that the Giants lost to the Green Bay Packers in 2016 after their 11-5 and promising regular season under Ben McAdoo in his first year, that is the only playoff game we have had in this market since Eli Manning and Mario Manningham and Ahmad Bradshaw beat the New England Patriots in Super Bowl 46. That was seven years ago. Since then, we have one playoff game, and it was a god-awful playoff game, starting with the boat trip to Miami at the beginning of that week. That's it. Seven years, no playoff wins, one embarrassing playoff performance. Two teams, by the way. No other team, no other market in the NFL gets two teams. Los Angeles does now. They just got two. We got two teams, and for the last half dozen years, they have both been completely inept, and that's where we are again. 
It is a football Friday, and we're getting ready to talk about the playoffs. And once again, the playoffs don't involve the Giants, and they don't include the Jets. Let's put the Jets aside for a little bit, because in my opinion, the uh, issues with the Jets don't run as deep as the issues with the Giants. Here's how I see the Giants as they're entering this Week 17 game against the Philadelphia Eagles. A game, by the way, I think they can win. I'm not going to lay money on the Giants winning. I'm not betting the money line. But I would not be surprised if the Giants win this game. I mean, why would you be surprised? First of all, the Giants are playing better. Saquon Barkley's got a bounce in his step. Daniel Jones is coming off the best performance of his career so far. Giants played the Eagles very tough just a couple of weeks ago in Eli Manning's first game back. And the Eagles are completely beat up. I know they had a great game plan and they play and they beat a Dallas team that's got even bigger problems than maybe even the Giants last week. But the Eagles, they're beatable. But as you look at the Giants, as they prepare for this Week 17 game, the one thing that I need to caution anybody who is involved in any decision-making process regarding this franchise, under no circumstances, if the Giants go out and beat the Eagles and knock them out of the playoffs and finish this season on a three-game winning streak, and there are all these positive signs and positive developments late in the season. Under no circumstances can you look at that as a reason to bring this head coach back for a third season. Under no circumstances. The Giants can go out and play the perfect game like they did in the 2000 NFC Championship against the Minnesota Vikings, and it still should not be enough to bring Pat Shermer back. He's been given plenty of opportunities to prove he can be a competent NFL head coach, and he has failed Every single step of the way. And as you watch this Giants team throughout this season come up small in the big situation, game after game after game, it became abundantly clear to me that the biggest problem with this Giants organization isn't the general manager. It's not the way they treated Eli Manning. It's not even the offensive line, which is its own problem. The biggest problem with this organization is this head coach. He can't motivate. He can't manage a game plan. And most importantly, and this is really all it comes down to, most importantly, he can't win. We are all judged on wins and losses. And in that profession, that's all you're judged on is wins and losses. Look, David Fisdale wasn't judged on wins and losses last year for the Knicks. They let him have a year to develop and get as good a draft position as they possibly could. Well, this year he was judged on wins and losses, and look what happened. He lost his job after 22 games. Okay, at some point, you've got to produce. And there are very few NFL head coaches in the history of the league who have been given as much an opportunity as Pat Shermer with as a winning percentage as low as his is. He has won fewer than 30% of his games as a head coach. 4-12, and 5-11 and 11 with Cleveland. Then he gets another opportunity with the Giants. 5-11. and 11. You think the arrow is pointing up? You've got this offensive rookie of the year coming off an unbelievable rookie season in Saquon Barkley. You've got Daniel Jones waiting in the wings who looked terrific in the preseason. You've got this influx of talent, young talent on the defensive side of the football. So yes, 5-11, and 11, not a monumental task to build on that. They came out and started the season 2-11. and 2-11, and 11, a nine-game losing streak. How do you take a step back in the NFL from 5 and 11? It's very, very difficult to take a step back from 5 and 11 unless you were already headed that way. 
They were at three and thirteen. They got rid of the coach. They bring in Pat Shermer. He goes five and eleven, and they actually did a little dance for that two win improvement, according to what Dave Gettleman said in the offseason. So five and eleven, not a monumental task to build on that. I mean, Adam Gase built on that this season. And somehow Pat Shermer couldn't even build on five and eleven. Best case scenario, they finish five and eleven again. Look, four seasons, four full seasons. He's nineteen and forty-five as a head coach. He's the biggest problem with the Giants, and there have been positive signs these last two weeks against the Dolphins and against the Redskins. But under no circumstances can the Giants hierarchy take those as positive signs enough to bring back this head coach. Because here's the thing: bringing back a head coach for the sake of stability is not a good enough reason. It's just not a good enough reason. At some point, you need to win some football games. So what are the positive signs for the Giants down the stretch? There's a bunch of positive signs. And I actually think the last two games against Miami and Washington are more an example of Dave Gettleman deserves another chance to come back here for the Giants. Look, Dave Gettleman and Pat Shermer are not tied at the hip. Gettleman was here first. Gettleman helped hire Pat Shermer, but they're not tied at the hip. And Gettleman got that one wrong. Gettleman and Mara and Tish and everybody else involved in the head coaching hire got it wrong. Look, that was a botched head coaching search from the beginning. It was an uninspired list of candidates. It was basically, okay, let's narrow our list down to the offensive coordinator for the Patriots, Josh McDaniels, the defensive coordinator for the Patriots, Matt Patricia, and the offensive coordinator for the most surprising offense this season, Pat Shermer, in that order. McDaniels wanted no part of it. He went to Indianapolis, and he wanted no part of that. He backed out. Patricia wanted no part of the Giants. It was very clear to everybody that Pat Shermer was the Giants' third choice as head coach. How is that supposed to inspire any confidence? You might as well have stuck with Ben McAdoo at that point. I know McAdoo had already been fired four games prior, but you know my point. It was a very uninspired head coaching choice. It was a very poorly run head coaching search. That was a bad job by Gettleman. But you can't judge a general manager or you can't judge anybody on one decision. Now, Gettleman, it's a mixed bag. It's 50-50. It's pretty even as I look at it. The way he has handled himself publicly with the media... And because that's the only and, and look, I'm not one of these members of the media who thinks that you should be judged by how you treat the media. But the way you speak to the media, the way you interact with the media is your way of interacting with the fans. So when I say the way he deals with the media, I mean the way he delivers his message to the fans. And it's been bad. The way Gettleman has dealt with the media has been bad. He's been smug. He's been arrogant especially for a guy who has gone 9 and 23 in his two seasons here. So that's bad. The head coaching choice was bad. He swung and missed on Pat Shermer. It didn't really seem like they widened their net. Again, how hard is it to interview the offensive coordinator and the defensive coordinator for the New England Patriots? I think any head coaching position that's open right now, the top two candidates should be the offensive coordinator and the defensive coordinator for the New England Patriots. And in three years, the same thing. That was an uninspired coaching search. He did a bad job on that. How about the talent that he's brought into the roster, though? I don't think it's that bad. The last two weeks are a positive reflection on the last two drafts for Dave Gettleman. There are a lot of positives on this roster. The Giants have found their quarterback of the future. Now, is he Aaron Rodgers? No, I don't think he's Aaron Rodgers. There's only one Aaron Rodgers. 
Daniel Jones is a darn good quarterback. When the Giants selected leading up to the draft, and I was hosting a lot of shows here on 98.7 leading up to the draft, I wanted Dwayne Haskins. I didn't like Daniel Jones. I didn't like him at 6. I didn't even really like him at 17. I wanted the Giants to pick Dwayne Haskins at number 6, move on, make him your quarterback of the future. I was wrong. After seeing Daniel Jones play an entire season, I was wrong. And whatever Dwayne Haskins turns out to be, and Haskins has shown some signs of progress as well in Washington. I know he got hurt last week, but he's shown some signs of improvement. And Washington looks like they might be okay with Haskins. But we're talking about from the Giants' perspective right now. The Giants and Dave Gettleman went out on a limb, picked Daniel Jones, and nothing I've seen from him his rookie season has made me say, wow, they really swung and missed there. In fact, I think they have their franchise quarterback for the next two years, which surprises the heck out of a lot of people considering the reaction that that pick received on draft night. So that's a positive. He picked Saquon Barkley. The year before, I was standing on top of a chair shouting for the Giants to pick a quarterback, shouting for them to pick Sam Darnold. For the reason that locking up your franchise quarterback is the most important thing you can do as an NFL general manager. Well, you know what? It appears that Gettleman knew better than I did because it appears that As the Giants head into year three under Gettleman, if he does get that third year, they do have their franchise quarterback in Daniel Jones. And on top of that, they have Saquon Barkley, who, again, he's proven the last two weeks, when healthy, can be as good as any running back in the NFL. So if you can go into your third year with a third-year running back and a second-year quarterback, both of whom have tons of experience, both of whom have shown a lot of signs of progress and promise towards the end of their seasons, then you're ahead of the curve. That is a terrific backfield, quarterback, running back tandem that the Giants have. And then you look at the development of some of these young players on the defensive side of the football. It was ugly the first two-thirds of the year, but some of these guys are starting to make plays. Dexter Lawrence, another first-round pick. Even DeAndre Baker, who was picked on by every opposing offensive coordinator the first two-thirds of the season, he's starting to make some plays. Julian Love out of Notre Dame looks like he could have some promise. Corey Ballantyne, another rookie. Look, these are all rookies. These are all second-year players. These are all high draft picks who... I'm not ready to write any of them off yet. You can't write any of them off because they're in their first or second seasons in the league. Sam Beal is another one. What if these work out? What if this is Darius Slayton, a fifth-round draft pick? Remember Ahmad Bradshaw, a seventh-round draft pick, leading rusher on two Super Bowl championship teams. Okay, the first few drafts for Jerry Reese were pretty darn good, too. So Gettleman, in my opinion, has done enough to prove that he deserves to see this through. Now, he's got to he's got to hit on the next head coach because that's it. That's the biggest problem with this organization. And you could fill in from there. You need a new defensive coordinator. You still need to shore up the offensive line. Your offensive weapons are good enough, as is right now. They could always be better. They could always improve. But when you see what Slayton has become, Sterling Shepard, when healthy, Golden Tate, when not suspended, the offensive weapons for the Giants are fine. Evan Ingram is a huge question mark just because the guy can't stay on the field. When he is on the field, he's dynamic. you got to fix the offensive line, 
and you've got to fix the defensive scheme because I do think there are players on that side of the football. And Dave Gettleman's the guy who brought in those players. So this old there's, there's so many adages now that sports fans in New York and really everywhere fall into. One is if the coach goes, the general manager goes. And if the general manager goes, the coach goes. No, I don't think that's true in this case. Okay, I think Gettleman has his body of work and Shermer has his body of work. And Gettleman's body of work right now in my mind is a C to a C plus. Okay? There's some good I just pointed out a lot of the good things he's done. And then there's a lot of bad. The head coaching decision, the way he's projected himself as the leader of this organization. The trade for Leonard Williams was bizarre. I still don't understand that. There's bad. There's bad with everyone. There's bad with Brian Cashman. Brian Cashman's got the Jacoby Ellsbury contract on his resume. He's got the Carl Pavano contract on his resume. He's largely thought of as the best general manager in this town. He or Lou Lamorello. Nobody's perfect. Okay? Gettleman is far from it, but Gettleman's body of work, in my mind, has been enough to let him continue to build this thing. Because what Gettleman did take over was an absolute mess. But if you look at the head coach's record and the fact that he has lost more than 70% of the NFL games he has coached. More than 70% he has lost. And you just watch this team play. You watch this team make crucial mistakes. You watch him not really having a firm grasp on the game plan on the sideline. You just know that this man is not the guy to lead you back to prominence. So that's where I am with the Giants. The Jets is a different story. I know that Adam Gase is not the most popular guy, but you can't look. He's, he's on the verge of going seven and nine in his first season. The Jets haven't made the playoffs for nine years. You can't get rid of a coach off of that. Okay. I know they had a terrible start, but look at it this way from the Jets perspective. If they beat Buffalo and Buffalo is, is certainly beatable because they're locked into the five. They're not going all out this weekend. If you beat Buffalo this week and you finish seven and nine after that disastrous one and seven start. Now that's the positive. On the negative side, the two losses in that season ending stretch against Miami and against Cincinnati are so crippling. But let's go back to the positive side. Had you won those games, the Jets actually would be in position to make the playoffs this weekend. Think of that. If they went into this week in eight and seven, coming off a win over the Pittsburgh Steelers, eight and seven is Tennessee's record. They have the sixth spot. They have the last playoff spot in the AFC right now. That could be the Jets. Now, again, those two losses go on the head coach. Those go on Adam Gase more than anyone. But had they, you, you can't, you can't just continue this cycle of bringing in a new coach when you're not happy with how somebody coached a game or bringing in a new coach when you're not happy how somebody coached a season. It doesn't work like that. There's not this plethora of hot, bright, young head coaches sitting off to the side, ready to be called in to coach the Jets or the Giants. That's why the Giants end up with Pat Shermer, and that's why the Jets end up with Adam Gase. Because there's a dearth of really qualified candidates out there. Coaching matters, folks. Coaching absolutely matters. That's why the Patriots get worse every year in terms of their talent and their personnel, and they still win divisions, and they still get first-round buys, and they still go to the Super Bowl. That's why the Ravens, no matter who their quarterback is, who's on their defense, who their running back is, who's in their division, that's why the Ravens every year, just about every year, go to the playoffs, win division titles, win playoff games, and challenge to go to the Super Bowl. Coaching absolutely matters in the NFL. And that's why the Giants, 
the last two years have been non-competitive because coaching matters and the Giants right now do not have a good coach. So the thing you got to caution against if you're a Giants fan is if the Giants go out and have this terrific performance against a beat-up Philadelphia Eagles team this weekend and they finish on a high and on a three-game winning streak and they knock Philadelphia out of the playoffs and the Cowboys get into the playoffs because of what the Giants did, you cannot take that as an excuse to say, well, Shermer did turn this thing around. Let's roll it back another year and give him one more opportunity. No. He's already had his opportunity. He had his opportunity for two years in Cleveland. He's had his opportunity for two years here in New York. It is time to move on. When you've got it, you've got it. And when you don't, it is abundantly clear, and it is clear in this case. Pat Shermer does not have what it takes to be an NFL head coach. He does not have what it takes to be the head coach of the New York Giants. All right, one 800 Football Friday here in New York. Pat O'Keefe sitting in for Stephen A. Smith until 3 o'clock. Friday afternoon, Pat O'Keefe back with you on the Stephen A. Smith Show. one 800 Good news out there. We got another chance to win the pigskin payoff. Pigskin payoff. That's right, it's 98.7 ESPN's Pigskin Payoff. So be the first caller at 1-888-987-ESPN. You will win a $100 gift card to PC Richard & Son. Predict which Jets or Giants player will score their team's first touchdown this week, and you'll win $500 cold, hard cash. It's all from PC Richard & Son, the company you can trust since 1909. Also, us here at 98.7 ESPN. All right, Pat O'Keefe back with you in for Stephen A. till 3 p.m. talking Giants as they get set to wrap up another disappointing season. However, the last couple of weeks, a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. More in my opinion. Well, first of all, most in my opinion because of the players on the field, but more as a result of the work of the general manager and less as a result of the head coach. Although if you hear the players talk about Pat Shermer, they do speak highly of him and This is not an indictment of Pat Shermer, the man. This is an indictment of Pat Shermer, the head coach. He's an NFL head coach of the New York Giants, by the way, a coveted job. There are 32 of these in the world, and there is one job head coach of the New York Giants. He's got it right now. He's had two years to make it right. He hasn't gotten it done. Now, what has happened lately? Well, the Giants winning the last two weeks has pretty much knocked them out of the Chase Young sweepstakes. You probably need to be picking second in the draft to have a chance to pick Chase Young, the dynamic defensive end from Ohio State. Cincinnati's locked in at number one. They need a quarterback. They're going to move on from Andy Dalton, and it looks for all intents and purposes like Joe Burrow, the Heisman Trophy winner from LSU, is going to go at number one. So if you were the Giants or you were the Redskins or you were the Dolphins or now the Lions or any of these teams who were in the mix for one of these top picks, you kind of knew that you needed to get into that second spot to get a player like Chase Young because there are a lot of high-quality quarterbacks in this draft. Not as many as there were before the Tua injury, but still a lot of high-quality quarterbacks in this draft. And not all teams need quarterbacks. The Giants don't need a quarterback. They have Daniel Jones. It looks like the Redskins don't need a quarterback. Dwayne Haskins seems like he's a good guy to go with from here on out. The Dolphins obviously need a quarterback of the future. The Cincinnati Bengals need a quarterback, and they're going to take one at number one. But what the Giants' little two-game winning streak did, it did a couple of things. Uh, on the negative side, what it did was it pretty much knocked them out of the Chase Young sweepstakes. And, and wouldn't that have been unbelievable to have that guy 
plugged into your defensive line for the next five to eight years. It's not going to happen. It doesn't look like it's going to happen. But here's the thing. And unfortunately, sports in New York, outside of the Yankees and the Islanders for the last two years, and I don't know how many people pay attention to the Islanders, but in general, sports in New York over the last six, seven, eight years, unfortunately, has boiled down to more often than not, and I've talked about this on shows I've done before, it has boiled down to more often than not fans rooting for their teams to lose so it could improve their draft position, whether in baseball with the Mets, whether in hockey with the Rangers, football with the Giants and Jets, basketball with the Knicks. The Nets really haven't had any of their own draft picks for a decade, so they don't really count in that. And I am really sick and tired of that being the new norm in New York sports. What would have been great for the Giants next year is if they finished with a record commensurate to pick second in the draft and were able to get this generational defensive end in Chase Young out of Ohio State. Do you know what's better than that, in my opinion, for the long-term success of this franchise? What's better than that for the Giants is what happened last week in Washington, in overtime of that game, when Daniel Jones came in, in overtime, and drove the Giants down the field and threw a game-winning touchdown pass, his fifth touchdown of the game. It was a coming-out party for Daniel Jones, and that sort of progress, that sort of experience, and that level of success is going to be huge for the Giants moving forward. And you cannot underestimate that. It's not just about finishing 2-14 and 14 or finishing 3-13 and 13 and picking Chase Young. The experience Daniel Jones got in that game last week against the Washington Redskins is going to be more important for the Giants than anybody they could have picked in that draft. I'm serious. I go back to Eli Manning's rookie season, because why shouldn't we compare Daniel Jones to Eli Manning? It happened forever ago, but Daniel Jones is replacing Eli Manning. Now, Giant fans, you remember Eli Manning's rookie season. He was the number one pick in the draft. He didn't take over the starting spot until the 10th game of the season. Kurt Warner went 5-4 and four and then was replaced, and Eli started the last seven games of the season. And while that was happening, Ben Roethlisberger was starting in Pittsburgh, a team that went 15-1 and and went to the AFC Championship game. All of that was going on. And Eli was not just bad for a rookie quarterback. He was horrendous. He was as bad a rookie quarterback as you can possibly be when he finally took the reins from Kurt Warner in 2004. And there were a three, four, five-game stretch there where he wasn't showing any signs of progress. There was one game against the Baltimore Ravens where I think Eli threw for about 30 yards that game. I mean, we've seen some bad rookie quarterback play in this town even recently. But we've never seen Daniel Jones do anything to that level. I understand the game is different now. It's easier for a quarterback to come in and succeed right away with the rules changes and the way they're protected. But Eli Manning was as bad as you possibly could be as a rookie. And the Giants' last game of the season, it was January 2nd, 2005. It was at Giants Stadium, and it was against the Dallas Cowboys. And it was two teams going nowhere. The Giants came in with a record of... 5 and 10. The Cowboys came in with a record of 6 and 9. They were coached by Bill Parcells, by the way. Eli came out. It was a night game. Eli completed 18 out of 27 passes. He threw for 144 yards. He threw three touchdowns. He threw an interception. 
Eli led a Giants game-winning drive where they got the ball back with a minute and 41 seconds to go. Cowboys took a 24-21 lead with a minute 52 to go. Giants got the ball back, 141 left. Eli's first of many game-winning touchdown drives that happened against the Dallas Cowboys that night. Started the drive with a 23-yard completion to Tiki Barber, then a Tiki run, and then another Eli completion to Marcellus Rivers, and then three runs later for Tiki Barber. He was in the end zone. The Giants had a 28-24 to win, and Eli finished his rookie season on the highest of highs. A come-from-behind win over the Cowboys at Giants Stadium. I was actually at the game in the stands. You could feel the crowd in the stadium, falling in love with their rookie quarterback after such a difficult start to his career. And that really was the springboard for nearly a decade of high-level success for Eli Manning and the Giants. The next year, his second year in the league, his first full season, the Giants went 11-5, and and they won the division. The year after that, they fell back to 8-8, and but still made the playoffs as the wild card. And then in his fourth season, a 10-6 and record, they win the wild card, and that was the year that they beat the Patriots, the undefeated Patriots, in the Super Bowl. Following that, they started the year in 2008 11-1. They were the best team in the NFL when Plaxico Burris shot himself, and then the season was derailed after that. They still finished 12-4. and They still got the number one seed in the NFC. This is Eli's seasons 2-9 through nine in his career, by the way. After that, 8-8, eight and eight, no playoffs. Okay, that was the low end. Giant fans out there, you would... Kill for eight and eight right now. When was the last time you saw eight and eight? Eight and eight, no playoffs for Eli. Ten and six, no playoffs for Eli. And then they bounce back in 2011. They go nine and seven. They win the NFC East. They win the Super Bowl for a second time. And his season after that, they went nine and seven again, but did not make the playoffs. So years two through nine for Eli. And I remember the night like it was yesterday. In my opinion, that night against Dallas, the last game of his rookie season where he finally kind of had his coming out party and came into his own, that set him up for year two, which set him up for the rest of his career. Years two through nine for Eli Manning. The Giants had a regular season record of 77 and 51. They won two division championships. They won two Super Bowls. They went to the playoffs five times in eight years. And I was, as I was watching that Giants Redskins game last week, again, Two teams going nowhere, just like that Giants-Cowboys game oh so many years ago. Giants-Redskins, two teams, quote-unquote, going nowhere this season, but not going nowhere beyond this season. So it was a big game in the fact that as Daniel Jones was driving the Giants down the field in overtime, I had flashbacks to that game in 2005, Eli Manning's coming out party against the Dallas Cowboys. Now, Can Daniel Jones use the way he's finishing this regular season as a springboard for more success in the years to come? Well, Giants fans certainly hope so, because here's the bright side. Daniel Jones is bad this year, has not been nearly, nearly as bad as Eli Manning's bad when he was a rookie. I mean, Eli Manning's first six starts, here we go, first six starts in the NFL, he completed 46% of his passes, yuck, 46%, he was 0-6, He threw three touchdowns, he threw eight interceptions, and he threw for 139 yards a game. So the biggest positive, the two biggest positives you're taking out of the way this season is ending for the Giants are, number one, they got their quarterback of the future. Daniel Jones has proven that he is an NFL quarterback, and he's also proven that he can perhaps be even more than that. It remains to be seen how he develops moving forward, but he's an NFL quarterback, And you've got to feel good about him being your quarterback week one next season. 
And number two, the resurgence of Saquon Barkley. The Miami game, 112 rushing yards. The Washington game, 189 yards on the ground. His first two 100-yard rushing games since weeks one and two of the season. I mean, it has been a, a brutal season for Barkley. He had the injury against Tampa Bay. Then he missed three games after that. And then he came back and just didn't play well. You could tell he wasn't 100% out there. And then he started to get, not depressed in a sense of, um, he got, he, he was upset. He, he was down. You could, you, you could just read his body language. You could hear his interviews. He was down. He wasn't the same chipper, happy go lucky kid he was as a rookie when even though his team was going five and 11, he was setting the world on fire. He had a smile that could light up the room and he was the future of the franchise. You didn't get that from Saquon Barkley during that long nine game losing streak for the Giants. But the last couple of weeks, he's broken out of it. He's come out of his shell and you're starting to see more of the Saquon Barkley that Giant fans fell in love with last season. So there are positives for the Giants heading into next year, a next year that, in my opinion, cannot include Pat Shermer as their head coach. 1-800-919-3776. When we come back, we'll get to your calls. It's Pat O'Keefe in for Stephen A. Pat O'Keefe back with you. It's the Stephen A. Smith Show, 98.7 ESPN New York. Final Friday of 2019. Final football Friday of the regular season here till 3. you got the Michael K. Show coming up next. Alan Hahn sitting in for the guys this afternoon. That coming up after me. All right. Well, we have 98.7 ESPN's Super Box Bonanza 2. We're giving away over $10,000 in cash and prizes, including a $3,000 grand prize. All you've got to do is listen for your chance to win all 100 boxes to February's big game. We'll be given away during the DPHO Rothenberg and Canny show from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. and the Michael K. show from 3 p.m. to 7 p.m. starting Monday, January 6th. Plus, we'll have 10 super boxes with even more great prizes, and it's all brought to you by P.C. Richard and Son. Get ready for the big game with a new TV from P.C. Richard and Son, and you're home for football, 98.7 ESPN. Remember the Ray Hanley era? That, among modern Giants fans, is kind of the two-year period of ineptitude. Bill Parcells had just come off leading the Giants to an improbable Super Bowl 25 victory, um, and then obviously stepped aside shortly before the uh, the next season was to begin in 1991, citing health reasons. And it kind of began like a decade and a half worth of Bill Parcells landing in one place for three or four years and then leaving. But the last minute replacement for Bill Parcells was Ray Hanley, the Giants running backs coach, running backs coach. Um, and throughout history and things obviously get exaggerated throughout history. But if you bring up the Ray Hanley era to Giants fans, they – React as if it was similar to when Rich Kotite led the Jets to a one in fifteen record. Ironically, before Bill Parcells took over the Jets and turned them around. You know what Ray Hanley's record in two years as the head coach of the Giants was? Kyrie. You know what? Just take a guess. Two years. Now this is the example used by Giants fans for ineptitude. He was the coach for two years. What do you think his record was? Man, seven and. Yeah, you're on the right track. Seven and what would that be? Twenty five. Yeah, yeah. You know what the record was in two years under Ray Hanley? It was fourteen and eighteen. It was fourteen and eighteen. And Giants fans look back on that two year period with disdain. You would think the way they talk about it, Kai, that they were seven and twenty five over those two seasons. I don't think we have fourteen wins now. Seriously, <laughs> that's like salad days compared to what the Giants have now. Hanley came in. He took over a Super Bowl championship team. 
Bill Parcells had left, and he left in May. I think it was May. So the coaching carousel had already stopped, so they had to promote from within. He went 8-8 eight eight his first season, and then he went 6-10 and ten his second season, and then he was run out of town and replaced by Dan Reeves, who somewhat stabilized uh, the the organization, but it didn't need that much uh, stabilization. Fourteen and eighteen compared to what's going on right now. I mean, goodness, Pat Shermer and Ben McAdoo's last season combined twelve and thirty-five. We got three and thirteen. We got five and eleven, and we got four and eleven right now. And there are people out there that are possibly entertaining bringing back this head coach for another season. My goodness. 1-800-919-3776. Let's go to the phones. Let's uh, check in with Ryan in Middlesex. What's going on today, Ryan? I am loving your take right now on the New York Giants. I hope every fan is listening to you. You're coming up with great reasons for it. And, and, and it's been my thing all along. To go out and beat the Eagles, to finish on a high note, will have way guaranteed more impact than a potential high draft. Listen, Chase Young, I'm sure he's going to be great, but you don't know, right? And it's not like we're not going to get a great player at five, let's say. We could potentially get our left tackle for the next ten years at pick number five. So it's not like we're going to just, you know, lose a, a good draft pick. And plus we can we can use free agency to get a pass rusher. So I love what you're saying. I want us to go out. I'm going to be at the game. I hope we go out and, and end the Philly, uh, Eagles season. That's what I'm rooting for, and I'm glad you're talking about it, man. I appreciate it. Enjoy the game, Ryan, and thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Here's the thing, the, the, this is what makes it clear cut for the Giants fans on how to approach this game on Sunday. Chase Young is gone. Nothing you do on Sunday is bringing him back. All right. You're not getting the number two pick. Washington or Detroit or Miami, they're going to finish ahead of you. You're going to be in the four, five range. I haven't done the exact math. You're not getting number two. You're not getting Chase Young. Now, would I feel a little differently? I, look, I've never been a proponent of tanking. Even last year, when the Knicks were going through 17 and 65, and I'm not just saying this because I host the Knicks pregame show here on this station, but I don't think that the Knicks at any point last year went out with the idea to lose basketball games so they could get more ping pong balls for Zion Williamson. I don't. I think the Knicks went out last year trying to develop their young players like Knox and Neil Aquina and Mitchell Robinson, and as a result of playing young guys who had very little NBA experience, that's how you finish 17 and 65. They didn't put Ennis Cantor on the bench for Mitchell Robinson because they wanted to lose. They put Ennis Cantor on the bench for Mitchell Robinson because they wanted Mitchell Robinson, who never played college basketball, by the way, to get some experience as an NBA player so that in the future, when the time came where they needed Mitchell Robinson to contribute as an everyday player, he could. Oh, and by the way, guess what? He is. So I've never been a proponent for tanking. So even if the Giants did have Chase Young out there, do you coach the game a little differently? Well, Shermer's not going to coach the game differently. He's not going to be here the next season. He, he he wants to win because if he wins, guess what? His career winning percentage goes above 300. <laughs> but it's true. He's at like 296 right now. So he wants to win. He doesn't care that Chase Young's going to be a giant next year. He's not going to be coaching him. You can, and especially in football. All right, basketball, you throw a couple of guys on the bench, you know, like the Knicks did last year. They put Cantor on the bench. That weakened their team. I mean, it helped develop Mitchell Robinson. It helped him become the player who he is now. But taking Cantor off the floor last year for the Knicks, putting him on the bench, a guy who was a 20-10 and 10 guy any given night, that weakened their team. 
Okay, but there was a greater goal there. You can't really do that in football. You can't take out the offensive line because then you're going to get your quarterback killed, your franchise quarterback. It's not as easy to quote-unquote tank in football. So at this point, Chase Young is gone. It's a pipe dream. He's probably going to be in the division facing you as a member of the Washington Redskins in the future, and it is what it is. But the experience that Daniel Jones got last week, taking a team in overtime on the road, Late in the season, cold weather. I don't care the records of the teams playing in the game. The experience that he got from that game is going to be invaluable moving forward because I saw it 15 years ago with Eli Manning capping off what was a miserable rookie season on a high note for the Giants in that game against the Dallas Cowboys. And at some point, fans, and I'm talking to Giants fans and I'm talking to Jets fans, and I'm talking to Knicks fans, I'm talking to Rangers fans, I'm talking to all New York fans, because this has been a rough decade. I saw there was a poll today that Jacob deGrom was voted the New York Athlete of the Decade in some publication, I don't know where. I mean, deGrom, he's only been in the major leagues for half of this decade. He's been great for that half, but the fact that the best athlete in this town in this decade only was in the majors for five years shows... It was a bad decade for New York sports, but I'm talking to New York fans. It's time to start rooting for your team to win. It's okay. Come out. Join me. Root for your team to win because there are benefits to winning games. You build team chemistry. You gain confidence. You figure some things out. There are benefits to going out and winning games. So join me moving forward into the new year of 2020 and root for your team to win games. Pat O'Keefe in for Stephen A. we got another hour to play with. All right, hour number two on this Friday afternoon. Pat O'Keefe sitting in for Stephen A. Got the Michael K. Show coming up next here on 98.7 ESPN New York. Alan Hahn will be manning the fort for the guys on this football Friday. And in many circles, a basketball Friday after what happened last night at Barclays Center as the uh, Knicks, a combination of one of their most impressive defensive performances of the season and the Nets putting forth one of the most inept offensive performances, not just for them, not just of the season, but in NBA history, a 94-82 to Knicks win over Brooklyn last night. Now, before I dive into that game and the current state of the Knicks, I do want to go to something that Kenny Atkinson said before the game last night at Barclays Center. Now, Atkinson, and you can probably tell by his reaction in this clip, has been asked this question several times before, but Kenny Atkinson in his fourth season as the head coach of the Brooklyn Nets is, and it's not even really close right now, the longest tenured manager or coach of the nine major league sports that we have in the New York market. Obviously, the three hockey teams, the two basketball teams, the two football teams, and the two baseball teams, which in his fourth season, I mean, it feels like Kenny Atkinson just got hired by the Brooklyn Nets. It was a young first-time head coach going 20-62 and and going 28-54, and so the fact that he's kind of the elder statesman among coaches and managers in New York says a lot about the state of the profession. And Atkinson was asked last night before the Knicks-Nets game if that makes him happy or if that makes him a little uneasy. I know the you know, time is like ticking. <laughs> you know, this is, you know, I get it. So thanks for bringing that up. I was going to say, does that make you feel good or does that put you on edge? It, it puts me on edge. I'm a nervous person by, by nature. So I'm just, just, it's like, man, uh, this is, this is going to be tough. You know, tough, you know, tough business, tough town. 
you know, I, I think expectations are, 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 you know, have been raised. I, I, I get the business. I, uh, I watch it in other sports. Um, so, um, I know, like I said, I know my time will eventually come <laughs> and, uh, just do the best I can till, till, uh, you know, till that happens. The Nets dropped to 16 and 14 with that loss to the Knicks last night, but that's furthers my argument that and I, look, he's not the most likable guy in the world. Some of the stuff that Adam Gase says, you just shake your head. Some of the coaching decisions he makes in the middle of the game, you just shake your head. But sports in many ways has boiled down to, okay, you get a half a season or you get a full season. If you don't get it done, then we're just going to bring in the next guy. Adam Gase doesn't deserve to lose his job. Has he been perfect? Far from it. Has he been good? I don't think he's been good this season. He's obviously been better the second half of the season. But what has he been? I looked at the Jets in the offseason, and I said that if the Jets took care of business in their own division, they could make the playoffs. That was my, if this happens, then this will happen. Well, you know what? They didn't take care of business in their own division because they, look, taking care of business in the AFC East, in my mind, is going 4-2 and two because I'm going to give you two losses against the New England Patriots. But... The Bills were unproven before the season, and the Dolphins we knew were going to be among the worst teams in the NFL. So I said, go out and take care of business against the Bills and the Dolphins, and you'll be in the playoffs. And guess what? I was right, because if the Jets had taken care of business against the Bills and the Dolphins, they'd be in the playoffs right now, because they're 0-1 against the Bills, and they're 1-1 against the Dolphins. So they're 1-2 in those two games. They're 6-9 and overall. Had they won those two games that they lost in the division, one to the Bills, one to the Dolphins, they would be 8-7. and entering Week 17 against the Buffalo Bills. But, look, they haven't been to the playoffs in nine seasons now. They lost their starting quarterback, who showed a ton of promise at the end of last year, for a month. He missed three full games, and in the first game without him, their backup quarterback broke his leg or was injured for the season, whatever the injury was to Trevor Simeon. So basically, Adam Gase, his third, fourth, and fifth games as a Jets head coach, or his second, third, and fourth games as a Jets head coach, was playing without an NFL quarterback in Luke Falk. He wasn't an NFL quarterback. And he was playing with a bad offensive line. And he was also playing without his top defensive player, who the first half of that Buffalo game in C.J. Mosley was awesome. The first half of the first three quarters of the opening game against Buffalo, C.J. Mosley was awesome. And then you pretty much lost him for the season. And despite that, they're 6-9. and nine. And with the fact that Buffalo is not going to go all out this week because they're locked into the five, seven and nine is a realistic possibility for the Jets. You can't fire a guy off a of seven and nine unless he does something egregious. Adam Gase hasn't done anything egregious. He's not likable. He's not warm and fuzzy. You know what makes you likable? Winning games. So the Jets actually aren't, as the dust has settled, and I know they were one and seven, and after they went one and seven, they lost to the Dolphins. And they lost to the Bengals, both of whom were winless. But when the dust settles, if the Jets are even six and ten, but let's say seven and nine, which is realistic now, if they can go up and beat Buffalo, they're pointed in the right direction. You can't fire a guy off of that. They're actually not that far away. They're not that far away. Darnold looks much better since he's come back, especially the second half of the year, since that New England Patriots game. And again, take that video clip out where he's saying I'm seeing ghosts. You look at the whole Patriots game differently. You look at the middle part of Sam Darnold's season differently. I mean, so much of how these players, these young players now are viewed is based on perception. 
the perception that uh, Sam Darnold said the one thing you can't say in the NFL, I see ghosts. If he doesn't get caught on camera saying I see ghosts, you look at his season differently. So Gase can't go. Kenny Atkinson said it right there. He goes, I know my time is coming. He's laughing about it. He's in his fourth season. He's coming off an overachie- leading an overachieving Brooklyn Nets team to the playoffs last year and doing the same thing this year, by the way. They're 16 and 14, and they're without their top three players, Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, Karis LeVert, and they're still in playoff position and above 500 in the Eastern Conference. You can't let Adam Gase go after one year. He's going to be 6-10. and 10. He's going to be 7-9. and nine. He had to play a month of the season without his starting quarterback. He lost his top defensive player to injury. Now talk to me next year. If they take a huge step back and he's still cantankerous and not that impressive and not that likable and makes questionable decisions during the game and the Jets record-wise take a step back, you know who else isn't that likable? Bill Belichick. But he wins. So who cares if he's likable or not likable? Win games. That makes you likable. Six and ten, seven and nine, your first season, when you take over a team that has missed the playoffs eight straight years, that doesn't deserve a ticket out of town. I'm sorry. Enough is enough. I know the Cardinals, the Arizona Cardinals did it last year, and it seemed to work to a certain degree. Look, Steve Wilkes didn't get a fair shake. He took over a rebuilding team with the Arizona Cardinals. He was a very good defensive coordinator in Carolina. And they went 3-13, and and they were bad. They were a bad team top to bottom. Josh Rosen struggled. The offensive line struggled. They were bad top to bottom. And they pulled the plug on the guy after one season. You rarely see that. And you bring in Cliff Kingsbury, which was kind of a signal to really change the whole offensive philosophy of the team. This, by the way, is around the league driven by Ford Lincoln of Queens. You bring in Cliff Kingsbury, who has his own ideas on how to run an offense. No NFL head coaching experience. You also pull the plug on your rookie quarterback, Josh Rosen, after one season. And you draft Kyler Murray, number one. It seems to have worked. I mean, look, they were 3-13 and last year. They're 5-9-1. The record's not great. They're in the toughest division in the NFL with the 49ers, the Seahawks, and the Rams, all above 500. And they've been very competitive in a lot of those games they've lost. So that is kind of an anomaly, in my opinion, what Arizona did pulling the plug on a head coach after one year and it working out. That doesn't mean it's going to work out with the Jets. And that's not what the Giants are doing. It's two years of Shermer. It's two years of head-scratching decisions and not inspiring any confidence in your players or your fan base or anybody you're coming across. It's a different story. That second year is a big difference. Two years, especially when you tack it on to the two years that Shermer had in Cleveland, that's enough of a sample size. It's time to move on from him. But Adam Gase, come on. I know he's not likable. You don't like the guy. And who are you going to get anyway? I said it before. Is there like this room somewhere where there's all these young, hotshot, you know, Cliff Kingsbury, Matt LaFleur type coaches that are just hanging out somewhere that are ready to be called and take over an NFL team and lead you to the playoffs? Is Because if, if there's a room like that, then please hand the key to John Mara and Steve Tisch. Okay, because they need a key to that room. But I don't think that room exists. That's why you have as much mediocre or less than mediocre coaching in the NFL as you do. That's why you got a guy like Pat Shermer as the head coach of one of the flagship franchises in the NFL. All right, it's Pat O'Keefe in for Stephen A. 1-800-919-3776. To continue my theme that coaching matters, the New York Knicks are playing a little bit better lately. And... Mike Miller took over as the interim head coach a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago now. And last night was his 10th game um, since taking over. Miller's 
interesting story because when he was promoted, absolutely nobody knew anything about him. He was a career coach, coached at some small uh, Division One colleges, some mid-major colleges, had different levels of success. Then he moved into the assistant coaching ranks in some higher-level colleges, and then he decided he wanted to try his hand at professional coaching, and he got an opportunity with the Spurs G League team. And then he moved over to Westchester and was the uh, head coach of the Westchester Knicks for four seasons, did a very good job there, was the G League coach of the year. And then before this season, David Fisdale and the Knicks brass promoted him to an assistant coach in the NBA. So really, this is his first time ever, ever sitting on an NBA bench. And two months into that tenure, he's the head coach again. I just said it about the Giants, one of the flagship franchises of the NFL. He's the head coach of one of the flagship franchises of the NBA. And so far, so good. Look, I never bought into the narrative that the Knicks roster was as bad coming into the season as it was performing on the floor. I mean, they started off 4-18. and And I understand that free agency did not work out the way the Knicks wanted it to. They wanted Kevin Durant, healthy or not, apparently. They wanted Kyrie Irving if it meant getting Kevin Durant. They wanted to try to get a meeting with Kawhi Leonard. They had all of this cap space. They traded off Chris Stapps, Porzingis to create the room. We all know what the Knicks went through, and we all know that it did not live up to what everybody's hopes and expectations were. But when I looked at the Knicks roster coming into the season, I didn't see a roster with names like Julius Randle and Marcus Morris and Alfred Payton and Bobby Portis and another year of development for Kevin Knox and Mitchell Robinson. I didn't see a roster that should have started the season 4-18. and I'm sorry. And I understand that Knicks fans were disappointed, and the roster they did start the season with wasn't necessarily one that you would expect to compete for a playoff spot, but I don't think the expectations this year coming off a 17-win season should have been to compete for a playoff spot, even in the Eastern Conference, for a couple of reasons. That's a huge jump. 17 wins, you got to get up to 38, 39, 40 wins to compete for a playoff spot. you got to more than double your win total. With a large new group of characters, large cast of characters that are brand new to the organization. And number two, as it turns out, the Eastern Conference is pretty darn good. It's a lot better than it's been in years. I mean, you look at the Nets right now, they're 16 and 14. They're in seventh place in the Eastern Conference. The East is top heavy. They have six very strong teams. They're looking more like the West has looked in recent years. So those two factors alone tell you that the Knicks really shouldn't have been expected to compete for a playoff spot. But there's a large gap between competing for a playoff spot and going 4-18. and And the Knicks did not have the roster that should have gone 4-18. and So there were two narratives out there. There was one that the, 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 the narrative out there was that the roster that David Fisdale was given was not strong enough to compete. It wasn't strong enough to compete, and it wasn't his fault. I don't understand why it can't be both. I don't understand why, yes, the roster isn't one that can compete for a playoff spot, but the head coach that they had in charge of this roster should have done better than 4-18. and I mean, you just look around the NBA. If Rick Carlisle had the Knicks, or Eric Spolster was coaching the Knicks, or Kenny Atkinson was coaching the Knicks, are those guys going 4-18 and with that roster? No, I don't think they are. I really don't. In the time, I didn't think that they were, and now I don't think that they were. Because you know who else isn't going 4-18 and with that roster? Mike Miller, a guy who had no... NBA experience and Miller has come in and he's 
look, I, I look at Mike Miller right now, and it's really interesting because I've watched all of his games, and he's coaching like a guy who is a career coach, a lifer, as they say. And he has an opportunity that in a million years he never thought he would have had. And he seems to be doing it his way. I mean, if you watch Mike Miller manage these games, 4 nothing run for the other team, timeout. Let's settle things down. Less switching on defense. Alfred Payton coming back has obviously helped. You're starting to get more from Kevin Knox. You're starting to get more from Mitchell Robinson. You're starting to get more from Julius Randle. And I mean, it's not just about the record. Four and six in 10 games compared to four and 18 in 22 games. But he's starting to get more out of the players that they were counting on at the beginning of the season. And I'm going to highlight two in particular. And this is what coaching is supposed to be. Coaching matters. Julius Randle with Fisdale, 16.8 points a game. 10 games with Miller, 21.9. Rebounds up from 8.5 to 9 rebounds a game. Randle shooting 44% before, 47% under Miller. Downtown, Randle, 25% from 3 with Fisdale, 35% from 3 with Miller. And the turnovers, and Knicks fans that you have watched all these games, tell me the Randall turnovers weren't driving you crazy early in the season. 3.3 turnovers a game under David Fisdale. That's down to 1.8 under Mike Miller. He's coaching it differently. I think he's got a tighter grip on the team than David Fisdale did. I think Mike Miller's coaching like a guy who this is his one and only opportunity to keep a job like this, and he's going to do it his way. And there's probably a good chance he's not going to be the coach anyway next year. But the if he's if he's not going to get the job, and if it's going to go to someone else, a bigger name or a splashier name, he's going to go down fighting and doing it the way he knows how. Mitchell Robinson, another example. 8.9 points a game under Fisdale, 12.1 in 10 games under Miller. Rebounds up from 6.7 to 7.8. Minutes per game up from 21 to 26 minutes per game. Mitchell Robinson last night had what we call the minimum double-double against the Nets. 10 points and 10 rebounds, but if you watch that game, he was all over the floor. In the first half alone, he must have disrupted four or five shots that he didn't get credit for blocking. But that helped lead the Nets to shooting 26% from the field last night. Coaching matters. Coaching matters in every sport. And you don't always need to hire the coach that's friendly with the media or can attract the big-name free agents or is going to have LeBron James's cell phone number on his on his cell phone. That's not Mike Miller. Mike Miller is a coach. I don't know if he's the coach of the future for the Knicks, but he has certainly come in and put his imprint on this team right now. They're playing differently. They're not letting games get out of hand. They're competing. It's been 10 games with Mike Miller as the head coach. They've had one they've had one stinker. They've had one really bad game. It was the Washington game on Monday. When the Wizards came into the Garden, they were missing eight rotation players, including John Wall and other high-level players, and they came into the Garden and beat the Knicks. That was a bad performance. And the way they responded last night in Brooklyn was very positive. All right, 1-800-919-3776. Let's head to the phones and uh, chat with Richard in Manhattan. What's up, Richard? Pat, two points. First, with uh, Ray Hanley. Ray Hanley took over a Super Bowl team, and we didn't go to the playoffs for two years. He had uh, Lawrence Taylor, Phil Simms, O.J. Anderson, Carl Banks. So that's, that's, why, that's how bad he was. So, yeah, but he won 8-8. Eight eight. 
Yeah, what Super Bowl plays, though, Pat? That was awful. I mean, they didn't get to the playoffs after winning the Super Bowl. That was bad. Yeah, but there's a difference, Richard, between 8-8 yeah, eight, eight, right. and 4-12. and 12. I understand. Okay. Now, Mike Miller. Do you know who the greatest coach in Nick history is? Red Holtzman. Correct. Red Holtzman was a scout, essentially a G League coach. That's, and then the second best coach they ever had, Van Gundy. And he was on the bench. It doesn't mean a big name is going to be a better coach. So I'm going to stay with this guy. Now, Fisdale was 4-18. and 18. His hand-picked players, his, he had these players last year. He groomed this team into his team. He went 4-18. and 18. This guy comes, doesn't make any changes, uses the same players, doesn't know the players from anything. Just He's a coach in a G League, and he's, instead of 4-18, and 18, he's 4-6. and six. They put on a defensive show last night. The Nets scored 21 baskets, 21 baskets. They only had... Eight two-point baskets. Eight two-point baskets. That's an NBA record since the shot clock. In 70 years, that has not happened. Can you imagine what the Knicks did last night, the defensive effort? That has to be credited to the coach. As you said, coaching matters. This guy has done with somebody... I call it, somebody buys a suit, custom-made, wears the suit. They tell him, take the suit off, we're going to put it on somebody else, and he's going to look better in that suit that you picked out, that you had specially made for you. That's the job this guy, Mike Miller, has done. Four and six. If he can carry this to the end of the year, we're not going to look for another high-profile coach. We proved it with Van Gundy. We proved it with Red Holtzman. You don't need a big name to win. But this guy's doing a great job, and what he did last night further makes proof of it. You said the one bad game against Washington, that's true. But if nine out of ten games are competitive and he keeps plugging along at this rate, I don't think we look further. Pat, always a pleasure. Thanks a lot, Richard. Happy New Year. Look, there's a long way to go for Mike Miller. It is only ten games, but it's not four games either. I could see a difference after four games, but I wasn't going to get on the radio after four games and talk about how things are completely different because you need to see a larger sample size. I think 10 games is a large enough sample size to know that things around the Knicks right now are different. They've been competitive in all but two games. Uh, even the two games that they got blown out in last weekend, the tough back-to-back where they went down to Miami, they fell behind by 34. But even that game, they they lost by 15 points. They didn't roll over and die and quit. Too many times early in the season, you saw the Knicks just quit, including the last two games under Fisdale, under uh, against Milwaukee when they lost by 44, and then to come back home and lose to Denver by 37. The Knicks have not done that. Even in the Washington game, they played terribly. The Wizards were down by 13 in the first quarter. They started the second half on a 16-0 run. They led by 17 points with four and a half minutes to play. And even then, the Knicks went on a 16-2 to run. They had the ball down by three with a chance to tie. They lost the game. But the level of competitiveness, and, and I remember his first press conference before uh, his first game against Indiana, the game where Julius Randle missed the free throw with a tenth of a second left. That would have sent the game to overtime. But his first press conference, he said, I just want our team to play with more consistency. And simply put, that's exactly what they've done. And it's not just four and six. It's three and three on the road. I mean, look at the NBA standings and see how many teams have a 500 record on the road. Again, it is a very small sample size. It's only six road games. It's all we have to go on right now. Three and three on the road. How about Harris in Manhattan? Oh, I have a little trouble with Harris in Manhattan punching him up. Harris, what's going on? Can you hear me? 
Yeah, we got Can you, you hear me okay? I got you. What's going okay, on, Harrison? So, uh, you know what? I'm going to agree with you. Fisdale, in my opinion, is is more, I think, like an AAU coach. You know, he came in here um, with the promise of, of he knew these players, and players love him, relationships. They're going to recruit these big free agents. Didn't happen. And he doesn't have a system to coach players. So you, you, I'd actually watch games and... I'd say, where's you know, where's where's Porter's or Roberts, Robinson's guys playing well? I almost felt like he forgot about players during games, and the, and the fact is that this team was never going to be good this year, but they have enough professional players where there's no reason that the, the team should have gotten off to that type of start where the season is became basically unwatchable. So Finsdale was, was, you know, I hate firing coaches after two years or in their second year or third year, but he was not a he was not a coach. He didn't have a system. There was nothing going on out there. And this guy, I mean, look, you know, he's been around. He's worked his way up. And just like the last caller said, maybe he's going to be a guy who, who develops into uh, a coach who they keep around. Because, you know, they've, they've tried pretty much everything. And nothing really seems to work out, so you know there's no reason to think this guy can't. My other point, as far as the team in general, um, as far as front office, look, Ujiri, if they can somehow, even if you had to trade a first-round unprotected pick for a GM, I would do it and then write him a blank check because there's very little that I can think of that's going to turn this franchise around other than a, a monster GM like him. All right, we'll, we'll see about that, Harris. Thanks. I mean, look, one thing at a time. Um, you want to see – I go back to the offseason um, when they obviously were disappointed, Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, not only not signing with the Knicks but signing with Brooklyn. I mean, it was it was a huge shot to the solarplex for Knicks fans, for the Knicks organization, for everyone. And basically what it boiled down to, why t- players like Kyrie and Kevin Durant chose the Brooklyn Nets – why players like Kawhi Leonard and Paul George chose the Los Angeles Clippers because these high-level superstars wanted to join a franchise that was pointed in the right direction and that had the infrastructure. The Knicks didn't have that last year. They were coming off a 17-65 and season. The Nets had it. The Nets were 42-40. and They were on their way up. The Clippers had it. The Clippers traded Tobias Harris, Blake Griffin, two of their best players over the course of two seasons and still managed to make the playoffs in the Western Conference last season. So when a guy like Kawhi Leonard is looking at where do I want to go, and I know he's from Southern California and that had a big uh, part of it, but when you're looking at where do I want to go, they were looking at the infrastructure. The Knicks have to work towards building that infrastructure. And they have an opportunity to do that over the final 50 games of the season. Look, so far so good. So far so good for Mike Miller. Four and six is a heck of a lot better than four and 18. By the way, that was around the league, and it's been driven by the all-new Ford Lincoln of Queens. Get the best pricing around at Ford Lincoln of Queens. Off the corner of Hillside Avenue and Queens Boulevard in Jamaica, call 1-888-YES-FORD or FordLincolnOfQueens.com. Pat O'Keefe in for Stephen A., 1-800-919-3776. We'll chat with you more when we come back. 
All right, you know the other thing that Mike Miller hasn't been afraid to do? He hasn't been afraid to make tough decisions since he took over the Knicks. I mean, point guard's not playing well. He's got three of them, and he's not trying to shoehorn all three of them into the rotation on any given night. If they're all playing well, if they're all playing effectively, then Smith or Neil Aquino or Peyton has gotten an opportunity. But there's been nights where he hasn't called Smith's number. There's been nights where Frank Neil Aquino has been buried. I mean, since Miller took over, and this is the one thing I'll say about Fisdale. This was unfortunate. I think it would have made a difference. I don't know how big of a difference because I still think even without him, they were better than 4-18. and 18. But Fisdale really didn't have the opportunity to have Alfred Payton as his starting point guard running the offense. Alfred Payton's return from injury and kind of seizing that starting position as the Knicks point guard has really made a huge difference uh, since Mike Miller uh, has taken over. Payton came back Fisdale's final game that 37-point loss against Denver, and he still wasn't even 100%, so he didn't get a ton out of him. Um, one of the earlier callers brought up Jeff Van Gundy. I thought of Jeff Van Gundy when the Knicks promoted Mike Miller because that is the gold standard for what could come out of an interim head coach because in the 95-96 season, Don Nelson, who at the time was already one of the winningest head coaches in NBA history, the Knicks brought him in to succeed Pat Riley after Riley had gone down to Miami following the 95 disappointing playoff loss to the Indiana Pacers. And for a while, it looked like it was going to be business as usual. The Knicks were right in the prime of the Ewing and Starks and Oakley years, and it just looked like they were bringing in another big-name coach, and this machine was going to continue rolling. And they fired Nelson, I think they were about they were well above 500. I want to say they were 34 and 25 when they fired Don Nelson in the middle of the season, but they had started to struggle. They lost nine of their last 13 games and it was two thirds of the way through the season. So they promoted 34 year old unknown assistant coach Jeff Van Gundy and the assumption, the 100% assumption, even more so than it is now with Mike Miller as the interim head coach. But the assumption across the board was Van Gundy was just going to coach out the rest of the season, and then the Knicks would bring in another big-name head coach. Well, something funny happened on the way to the end of that season, and over the course of the next seven seasons, Van Gundy, through hard work and his own talent as a coach, turned himself into a big-name head coach. I'm not saying that's going to happen here with Mike Miller, but it's happened before. It's happened with this exact franchise two decades ago. I remember the day after Van Gundy took over as the head coach of the Knicks. He was 34 years old. No one knew who he was. There was an article in one of the papers that listed all of the potential candidates to coach the Knicks at the start of next season. And they had odds for all of them. And I don't remember what the odds were. This is 20-plus years ago. But Phil Jackson was obviously one of the candidates because Phil Jackson was always a candidate to take over the Knicks as the head coach. And he had, let's say, 4-1 to odds to coach. And John Calipari, who was the hot coach at UMass at the time, was on the list. John Thompson, who was still at Georgetown, and of course was Patrick Ewing's college coach, was on the list. Chris Ford, who had been the Celtics head coach and was actually the runner-up when they hired Don Nelson, he was on the list. And Jeff Van Gundy, because he was the interim coach, they put him on the list. The odds, according to the paper, of Van Gundy being the head coach of the Knicks the following year were something like a 1,000 to 1. Basically, it wasn't going to happen. And it's funny because Van Gundy didn't set the world on fire that regular season. He took over late in the season, went 13 and 10. That's good. But the Knicks got into the playoffs. They won a playoff round. And then they played the, and this was the 96 Bulls. So this is the 72-win Chicago Bulls. The Knicks actually gave him a very tough series in the second round. I mean, the Knicks lost in five, but they played them very tough, and that was enough for the Knicks to give Van Gundy the full-time job, 
and he went to the playoffs every single year. He went to the NBA Finals in 1999. He went to back to the Conference Finals in 2000 before he resigned himself 19 games into the 2001-2002 season. So who knows? I mean, that's how Van Gundy started. Nobody in a million years thought he would get the opportunity beyond that season. They thought he was just a caretaker. And again, it's 10 games for Mike Miller, but you don't always need the flashy coach or the friendly coach or the coach who's going to give you the good soundbite. Sometimes it's just about coaching. Sometimes it's just about coaching. And if you watch Mike Miller manage these games from start to finish, I mean, if his team comes out with no energy and they're down 6 nothing at the start of the game, he's calling a timeout. He's burning through three timeouts in the first quarter. He's not worrying about what's going to happen down the line. He's worrying about keeping this train on the track for as long as he possibly can. And so far it's worked. So far it's worked. Coaching matters. College basketball fans here in New York, look at St. John's University. Coaching matters. You know, they brought Chris Mullen in. He was the splashy hire. He was the flashy name, the greatest player in program history. Nobody doubts that. New York City basketball legend, nobody doubts that. But he had no head coaching experience. And he struggled mightily as a head coach through four years. He did get St. John's to the NCAA tournament last year. They lost that play-in game. And then Mullen left, and they lost three starters. And Shamori Pons, who's one of the best players in program history, left. And you thought that the cupboard was bare for St. John's. And then they had a very sloppy coaching search where they were interviewing a bunch of coaches who I don't think would have been the right fit anyway. And somehow St. John's ended up with Mike Anderson, who's a coach. He's a career coach. And the criticisms against Mike Anderson were, well, he's from the Southeast. He coached at Arkansas. He coached at Alabama, Birmingham. He coached out at Missouri in the Southeast Conference. He doesn't know the Northeast. He's not going to get it done here. You know what? You don't always need the guy who's going to glad hand all the high school coaches or the AAU coaches in the area. Sometimes having a coach, sometimes having a good coach is good enough. And what, St. John's is 11-2 and two right now? Playing with a team that was projected to finish ninth place in the Big East Conference? They're on the bubble of making the NCAA tournament right now? Why? Because coaching matters. And it's, what St. John's did this season was they didn't bring a guy in who has ties to the area. They didn't bring a guy in who's best friends with the top AAU coaches in the area. They brought in a guy who knows how to coach a basketball game. He knows how to run a program. He knows how to run a practice. That's what the Knicks have right now. Mike Miller's been doing this his entire career. He's been a head coach at a lot of stops. He was a head coach in the G League. He was a head coach at two different colleges. Now, he wasn't always the most successful head coach in college because talent does matter at some point as well. But coaching matters. Let's go back to the phones. Sean in San Juan. What's up, Sean? Thanks for taking my call. No problem. What's going on? Uh, it's clear that the Giants would never hire a Kingsbury or a Lincoln Riley. They insist on being traditional. Uh, the thought of Garrett just terrifies me to death. But it should. What would you th- yeah, but what would you think about uh, them hiring right off the get-up set? We could get Lewis Riddick as GM and Rex Ryan as coach, and I'll just await your answer. You know, you could do worse than Rex Ryan as coach. I, I For the reasons you said, traditional and all that, I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, Lewis Riddick was one of the finalists for the GM job a couple of years ago when they hired Gettleman, who had a history with the franchise and had some success with Carolina. I like Lewis Riddick a lot. I don't think Gettleman needs to go. So I'm not even talking about that aspect of it. 
Um, under the right circumstances, I think that Rex Ryan is one of those guys who at the time drives you crazy. You question some of his decisions. You question, you know, at times his laissez-faire attitude. But then when you look back on his tenure and you're like, wow, you know what? It really wasn't that bad. I don't hate the idea of Rex Ryan getting an opportunity, but I don't see Rex Ryan being the head coach of the New York Giants. And I'm not even sure if uh, if he's worn out his welcome throughout the league or not. We'll see. That would be funny, though, both of them coming off the same set. How about Jeff in Queens? What's going on today, Jeff? Hey, Pat. How you doing? I'm Thank good. You. How you Thank doing? You, Thank you. Uh, I just wanted to talk about the Knicks. Um, I think as a Knicks fan, um, which I've been since I was seven, I think we overemphasize a lot of things, good or bad. I feel like even the game against the Mavs, I was under Fisdale, and that was all like the team spirit that they had that game. I haven't seen that in years. And that game was under Fisdale. So what happens when they quit on Mike Miller? You know what I mean? It's like I feel like the infrastructure, like how you said, that's the main issue. Here's the no, thing. The game, games like the Dallas game, and I agree with you. That was a, that was a great game. Dallas was at full strength. Luca was there. You know, KP right, was playing right. well. Um, yeah. th- that, but those, those performances under David Fisdale were too few and far between. The, the yes. here, 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 here's one big difference that I saw. Washington this week, very disappointing game. We've seen that act a million times before. Depleted team yeah. comes into the garden, have no business winning. They beat the Knicks. How do they respond? Too often under and, and I'm look. I'm not signaling out Fisdale. We can lump in Jeff Hornacek. We can lump in Derek Fisher. Yeah. But Fisdale's the most recent guy. Okay. Right. Too often they would have backed up that performance against Washington with a performance like the one against Denver that ultimately got him fired when they lost by 37. But this time, and again, Absolutely. it's a small sample size. I think Miller's literally coaching for his life because this is the greatest opportunity he's ever going to get in his life, and he recognizes that. The way they bounced back last night was impressive. For sure, and uh, who would be your coaching uh, hire if you if you was running the Rangers team for the Knicks? Yes, I liked the idea of Mark Jackson two years ago when they hired Fizdale. Um, okay, I liked. I've always liked the idea of Jeff Van Gundy coming back, um, and I'm not willing to write off Mike Miller yet as a candidate. Good. Could Mike Miller be assistant if for one of those two, if possible? I would imagine would he could be. be. I, I would imagine he's okay. not a longtime NBA head coach, but who knows? If the Knicks don't think Mike Miller is the guy going forward, but Mike Miller impresses another executive in the NBA, he might get another opportunity on somebody's bench. Who knows? One eight hundred nine one nine three seven seven six. Pat O'Keefe in for Stephen A. We got the Michael K. Show with Alan Hahn coming up at three p.m. Pat O'Keefe back on the Stephen A. Smith Show. Couple more minutes before we hand the reins to Alan Hahn on the Michael K show. Let's get a few more calls in. Justin calling from Queens. What's going on, Justin? Hello. What's up, Justin? You're on with Hello. Pat O'Keefe on the Stephen A. Smith show. What's happening? All right, Justin, not ready for prime time there. Let's go to James on Long Island on the Stephen A. Smith show here. Hey, Pat, how you doing? What's hey, up, James? Pat, how you doing? How you doing? Hey, Pat, how you doing? What's going on, James? Hello? Yeah, James, we hear you. What's happening? Hello? Well, this isn't the best end of the show that we could have uh, scripted. 1-800-919-3776. We got Rangers hockey later tonight. Rangers uh, back from their three-day Christmas break. The Carolina Hurricanes before the Rangers head out west for a four-game trip starting in Toronto. And then they hit the three Western Canada uh, clubs, Edmonton, Calgary, and of course, the uh, Vancouver Canucks. Let's uh, let's try another one. Let's try Jose in Brooklyn. What's up, Jose? 
Hey, what's going on, Pat? You good? Yeah, what's going on? Nothing much. I got the perfect head coach solution for the Giants. What do you got? We need we need to go after Ron Rivera. Yeah, I like it. I like Ron Rivera. I think he should be on the short list of candidates for the Giants. I think he would do a good job. Excellent defensive mind coach. Worked well with McCaffrey. Could do the same with Barkley. Can get the can get the perfect perfect thing for the Giants defense to need to be upgraded, man. He's a very, very good candidate for me, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I agree. I think you'll, there's a lot to like about Ron Rivera. As soon as he was let go by Carolina, I earmarked him. Obviously, he's got a relationship with Gettleman, who used to work for Carolina. They uh, helped lead the Panthers to a Super Bowl together. Uh, Rivera was there for a long time, has a lot of experience, mostly success. He had a 15-1 in season. He led Cam Newton to an NBA, uh, MVP campaign. They went to the Super Bowl, lost a disappointing game to the Denver Broncos. I, I think I would imagine that Ron Rivera is somebody on the radar of the Giants. I don't know the personal relationship between he and Dave Gettleman. Assuming Gettleman is back, that's going to have a big part in it. But I would have no problem with Ron Rivera being a strong candidate for the head coaching job of the Giants. And that's a Giants kind of hire, too, because the Giants aren't really the team that's going to go out and get a Cliff Kingsbury or a Matt LaFleur even. I guess they tried that a little bit with Ben McAdoo, and that certainly didn't work out. So they might be a little gun-shy this time around, bringing a young, quote-unquote, hotshot assistant in. Giants usually go for the more established head coach who's had success, and Ron Rivera fits the bill right there in the NFC. Recent success as well, so we'll see how that pans out. Coaching the theme of the day, and if there's one thing we've learned this year, it is that coaching certainly matters in sports today. I want to thank Ray Santiago and Kai Will for producing the show, running the board today. you got the Michael K. Show coming up next with Alan Hahn. I'll be back on New York Knicks pregame tomorrow when they look for their second straight win in Washington. Happy New Year, everyone.